Welcome to another episode of The Student Manager. It's Fonger News. It is 48 hours before the November 1st college deadline. And joining me, he is not a rookie to this podcast, Mark Stucker from Atlanta. Mark Stucker from School for Match. And not only is he my guest, we're going to pump him up. We're going to give him props right away. He is the sponsor of this podcast because I know some of you seniors out there still do not have a college counselor, still need a little help because you guys call me. And then for those underclassmen, juniors, freshmen, sophomores, if you want something, I'm telling you, we've used two different counselors. Joshua, who is a senior, has absolutely admired and enjoyed Mark Stucker. So why not have him on again? Stuck, what's up? Hey, happy to be here. I guess I'm a repeat guest, so I guess it went okay the first time. Happy to be back. Absolutely. Two and a half years. If you want to listen to his first podcast, it was episode 69 <laughs> back in July of 2021. How can people get a hold of you? For those of you that I know sure. that don't listen to the podcast right away, let's give out your email, phone number before we kick off the show. Sure. And, I, and I'm and i a texter, so I love a text uh, message intro, 404-664-4340, 404-664-4340. Uh, Mark Stucker with an S in front. Stucker, our company is School Match for You. That's just school match number four, letter U. Dot com. Um, and then we also have a, a podcast that, that Michael's actually been on before called Your College Bound Kid. And uh, we have a website, yourcollegeboundkid.com. We're up to episode 375. So six and a half years and over 500, it's over 500 hours of free content there. If you want to uh, sort of search for everything you can think of, we interview thought leaders in the world of college admissions. We take questions from listeners. And we talk about hot topics in the news. And then we do deep dives on colleges. Monday and Thursday, we go live with an episode every week. I appreciate that very much. And Stuck, I I look at you as a friend. You first came on as a podcast guest. And you've seen the development and growth of my son, Joshua, uh, from his freshman year when we didn't really do anything. And for those of you who want to know like what is available with Mark Stucker, with school match for you. He has the silver plan and gold plan packages, as well as you can use an hourly rate for those of you that just might need a little guidance here and there. So he is someone to hit up definitely, but he took Joshua under his belt and Joshua's thoroughly enjoyed him. And now it's November 1st, right around the corner, literally two days away. And Joshua has completed all his applications, push submit, so I guess my first question to you, for those out there listening and to you, Mark, is now um, that students, seniors that have pushed submit, what do they do? What are they waiting for? Guide my audience, guide right. my senior students that are listening, what they're doing from now, right? November 1st until yeah. they start hearing. Yeah, great question, Michael. Three things come to mind immediately. One is you never stop researching because you you like your schools enough to apply to them, but you may have some tough decisions still. Uh, you could find, you could get into five schools and you may not be able to visit five schools again. So then you might have to make some decisions. Which schools are we going to go back to? So you're still researching. You never stop researching. So that's the first thing I'll say, because you want to at least ask yourself this. If this school was to invite us to an admitted student visit program, would we either go, meaning maybe go for the first time if you haven't visited, or would we go again? 
So now there's another another level of cut that you're going to make. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want to say, well, let me stick in that theme. So start to find out what the admitted student day visit options are. This is a good parent project, actually. You, you know, schools have them on their calendar by now. It's good to map yeah. out a big calendar so you can see what all the dates are, because you still need to coordinate this with your student schedule, with your availability. And those are events that are worth going to, even if you've been to a school before. So I would say start to build a master calendar of all possible dates for either a revisit or first visit. And another thing that comes to mind, and this is extremely important, is become very familiar with the portal. So once you submit, schools move you over to the portal. Username, password, they should send you a username or password once you submit. And every school is a little different, but this is the most common thing. All kinds of information is going to be communicated to you in the portal. Uh, It's the most frequent way admissions decisions are communicated. Deferred, denied, waitlisted, admitted. If you're applying for financial aid, this is where you oftentimes get your financial aid package. And then just very important information can be communicated. Could be a scholarship. Gee, you're eligible for this if you submit this essay. There's even schools that you think you're done and they have an optional essay in the portal, which is oftentimes a test of demonstrated interest. And then eventually as you move in, there's going to be all kinds of information when it comes to things like roommate surveys and orientations. So become very familiar with the portal, uh, know the visit options, and continue to research the colleges. Those are three things that immediately come to mind for people that have submitted all the applications. That's great advice. The research is key. I was at dinner last night uh, Mm -hmm. with my son. We were talking about, don't you feel glad that you just pushed submit, right? Now let's start thinking about the next step. So that's some advice that we communicated talking about. All right. Right. If you yeah, let me have- let me throw one more thing in, Michael, because the early date is is up. November one is a very common early date. Of course, you know, you know, different schools are different. December one's a date. UC's end of November third for them. But the most common date is later into the year, even 2024. So yes. schools that have regular admission. They will have deadlines in January or February, even even early March. Schools that have rolling admissions, which basically means as applications roll on in, decisions roll on out, you go into a pecking order and the order in which you come in. Those schools keep admitting students until they fill. And then even as late as the spring, NACAC, which is National Association of College Admission Counseling, it produces a list of schools that still have openings and availability. That usually comes out the first week of May. There are usually more than 300 schools on that list that still have availability. So I would also add, you still may be able to apply to a school if you're if you feel like I don't completely have my list down. Maybe I'm not completely sure. Maybe I have too many stretch schools. I'm not sure if I've covered my bases with some good probables and some likelies. And I say that because most people in general, they tend to have top heavy lists. They have no problem identifying stretch schools, reach schools, challenge schools, call them what you want. Maybe some targets, mid-range, you know, possibles. But they don't always do a really good job of identifying the probables or the likelies. What I'd say to my students is you're really not done your search until you have applied to at least three probables or likelies that you would be happy to go to. 
And the last part is heart. Because what a lot of students do is they kind of understand I can't have a list full of all these stretch goals. So I will please my parent or my counselor and I'll put some likelies or probables on, but I'm not going to them. And and no, you need to get to the point where you are happy to go to your probables or likelies. That's when you know you're really. And the reason why I say three is because one thing that's happened a lot more in recent years is more and more schools are practicing what's called yield protection. And what yield protection is, is schools are passing over very, very strong applicants who they don't think are likely to come. So schools have research. They'll have research on what their yield. Yield is just a mathematical return that refers to the percentage of admits that enroll. And yield drives the bus. You got to get heads in bed. So everything's driven by what enrollment number do you need? And so they'll know well, we have a 5% chance that this kid who's coming 3,000 miles away who has a 398 and a 1520 SAT, we just we know what we're up against versus this kid right. who's around the corner that's got an 1100 SAT. If it's a school that's accepting test scores, it's a 3-2. They'll have all that data. And what more and more schools are saying is, well, if the public is going to judge us by admit rates, which a lot of times people do do, I know that because people will tell me, I don't want to go to that school. They accept everybody. So if we're going to get judged by our admit rate, then why are we wasting offers on people that are are not likely to come? And I was with Rhodes College, a very, very good school in Memphis, Tennessee. And they said, you know, Mark, we have an applicant. And it was basically what we call a ghost applicant or a stealth applicant. This is someone who's not in our database at all. They just show up. They may as well jump from Mars. They, they didn't fill out an inquiry form. They never met us at a fair or a school visit, didn't do a in-person virtual visit, anything. They said, we have a less than a 1% yield on a stealth applicant. So why should we admit them? Another school that I know you and I have talked about, Michael, High Point. I was meeting with them. And we were having a conversation about stealth applicants. And they said to me, if you ghost us, we'll ghost you right back. In other words, you know, schools will often pass over people they don't think are going to come. And sometimes it's not just the stealth applicant they'll pass over. They'll pass over that high flyer. Because their research shows we just know our, our competition is going to admit this kid. They have bigger brand names. We don't oftentimes yield against them. So sometimes some of the strongest kids will find themselves getting waitlisted or deferred at schools that they thought were their probables or their likelies. And that's why I like people to have three of them. I'll say this really quickly. I'm working with this family right now, and they have very long history of going to the University of Pennsylvania, University of Michigan. Like they have almost 20 family members that have gone to both of those schools and their kids taking a shot at both of them, but they know that they're probably long shots and not likely to happen. And they made me really happy the other day when they said, we visited the University of Pittsburgh and we love it and we'd be happy to go. And where my the mom told me my son would be happy to go. And I said, right. fantastic. Now I need you to find two more of them. So that'd be a third thing I'd add. That is great advice because those are some of the things I, I'm talking to my son about is you should go look at some other schools now that all your applications are in, right? I mean, here, you tell me, are we on the right page? Because you know some of these. I haven't even visited some of these schools. And these are ones that I'm talking to not only students about, but parents about. If you don't want to reach school or that sweatshirt brand school are the very probable, I'm going to get in. And when I say probable or getting in, right, Josh was already four for four. But he's like, yeah. I don't think I'd go to any of those. And yes. I said, at least you're going to college, right? Sure. 
And, and he goes, what happens if I get denied from everyone else, but these four are left? And I said, well, I know which one I would go to. Sure. It was actually Michigan State, right? There you and go. Hey, him little shout out for my alma mater there. <laughs> there you go, Sparty. You got, I, and he goes, you really love that campus? He goes, I haven't been on that campus in a while. I said, that's why we've done all our research. That's why we visited these campuses. Because now in the springtime, as a parent, if you're choosing between two, three, or four schools, let's go make that last run. And some of the schools we talked about that I said, if you get admitted, let's go see when their admitted school dates are. Miami of Ohio, James Madison University, even in, and then some of the ones that are in the Big Ten, Iowa and Indiana. Those are four schools I said, you're probably going to get into a couple of these. We should go check them out for peace of mind. And you can compare it against his top list, right? Sure. I was going to ask you uh, before you get into that tip is, you know, what with the essays, right? Mm -hmm. Because I want to get into that essay part. Soon enough, some schools are still requiring SAT, ACT. I think Tennessee, Joshua came back to me and he said, I think Tennessee is now off my list because now I have to take the ACT or SAT. Well, he's obviously not going to do that. But let's talk about the impact of that college essay this year and maybe even last year and then moving forward. Because I've read several essays and some other people's essays and things are starting to stick out and what really stands out, right? We talk about being sincere, genuine, and not write about ASB or the winning goal. You do this for a living. So let's talk about the impact of the college essay without a number, ACT, SAT. And let me say something first about ACT, SAT. There's only two states that require ACT, SAT. It's Florida and Tennessee. That decision is made by the Board of Regents, Board of Governors. So the schools in the public schools I'm talking about, the Rhodeses and the Sewanees and the Vanderbilts, the Belmonts, those are private schools. They can make their own decisions. Same for the state of Florida. And then Purdue, Georgetown, and MIT, those three schools. So it's not a lot that require it. But let's go to the essays. So for the essays, first of all, we need to differentiate. There's the personal statement, and then there's college-specific essays or custom questions. They're both extremely important. For the personal statement, colleges want to learn something about you that they can't find out any other way in the application. They can't get it from a transcript. They can't get it from a teacher rec. They can't get it from testing if testing's in the file. Can't get it from curriculum. They want to learn, and they want to really learn something that's significant about you. You know, I'll tell you one of my favorite quotes on the essay. I was interviewing Christina Lopez, who's the director of admission at Barnard College in New York. We got into talking about essays, and she said, Mark, I love essays that let me see the prism through which you see the world. It's not the only approach to an essay. You can do it on other things. You can do it on something you care deeply about. You can do it on some evolution of your thinking. There's a lot of different things that you can talk about, but colleges want to understand who this person is behind the paper. So we have two aspects of the application. We have data and we have voice. Data is all the number stuff. That's GPA. It's AP scores, SAT or ACT if they're in, curriculum. There's an important part of an application because colleges do first vet people to see whether they can do the academic program. But then there's this voice piece. And it's really important because it's who are you as a person? Keeping in mind, you're going to be in class 15 hours out of 168 hours in a week. That's if you take a full full course load. So the essay is the most powerful way for you to speak, for me to understand who you are. 
other parts of voice are teacher recommendations and interviews if schools have them. Those things, three things really comprise voice. Counselor recs, teacher recs, other recs, essays, and then an interview if a school has it. Now, with the essay, the personal statement, which is a 650-word essay that goes to all schools on the common application, which is accepted by more than a 1,000 schools and most of the well-known schools. Now, CSUs have their own thing and UCs have their own app. That's different. But outside of that, the most common application is the common app. The thing about a personal statement is admission officers don't advocate for people that they don't personally connect with. They just don't. The numbers don't get you excited about somebody, unless it's a school that just admits by numbers. When there's plenty of them, you have the numbers you're in, you admit by the numbers. But if it's a school that does what many do, which is what we call holistic admissions, then who you are as a person matters. So the essay is your opportunity to create this connection, this bond with the reader so that they'll fight for you at committee. And a lot of times what stands out in an essay are just personal qualities. Colleges are looking for these personal qualities. It could be all kinds of things. It could be resilience. It could be adventuresome spirit. It could be kindness. It, it could be leadership. It could be that glue kid that gets along with, with everybody, all different types of people. One of the things we're seeing a lot this year are essays related to diversity. Another thing we're seeing a lot, and this goes back to the fact that we're so divided as a country politically, is, you know, we can be divided as a country politically. You can stay in your own enclave. You can turn into your own echo chamber with whatever your political ideology is. And you can hang out with friends who believe what you believe and worship with people who believe what you believe and be in the same clubs or whatever. In a college campus, it doesn't work that way. You can be a roommate with somebody completely different from you, a hallmate with somebody completely different from you. And schools don't want they don't want their schools to be completely divided and separated where people aren't talking to each other and there's hostility. So there's a lot of questions this year that ask you something like, talk about a difficult conversation you've had and you were open-minded to change your view after having it. And they're sussing that out. Now, these are the college-specific questions. That's different than the personal statement. Personal statement is wide open for you to talk about anything. And I usually take people through a series of exercises, 25 questions they answer. We identify two to three topics that are authentic to you, but they'll also elevate your value. That's what you're looking for, the sweet spot between what is authentic to you, but it elevates your value. Because at the end of the day, colleges are trying to admit people that will make their community stronger. But they're looking for all kinds of things, whether it be interests, whether it be personal qualities, whether it be unique perspectives that people have, because they basically see the college as a learning laboratory where they bring people together who are different and and you learn from each other. But they do want people that can get along with each other. So in the college-specific questions, you're always going to see a lot of why us. We call it a why essay or why this school or why us. Colleges love to ask the why us question. Because it allows them to test two things in one question, what I call DI and DU. DI is demonstrated interest, meaning are you likely to enroll if we admit you? They can tell DI because they can tell immediately whether the student has done homework on the school. Do they have a surface level answer where they can tell this student hasn't put any work in? You can't fool them. They're professionals. This is what they do. So So it susses out DI. And it also assesses out DU. DU is demonstrated understanding. That's also extremely important. That is, do you understand who we are? 
And have you convinced me that you're a good match for who we are? So you'll, so for, I mean, this is my 24th year doing this. I've worked with over 1500 students since I've been doing this. Schools have been asking the why, why us question and schools of all stripes on the selectivity tier. And another thing you'll say is why your major is another common question. But one thing, there's two problems I consistently see with students on these custom questions, these college specific questions. They give two general answers, not enough depth, not enough specificity. A college is going to say, did that answer that you gave me apply only to our school or could you copy and paste it and use it somewhere else? And then the second problem I see is people say something that's very specific. Maybe they got it from the website. You know, maybe there's a whole new initiative on um, environmentalism going on on campus and that's your area of interest. So that's really appealing to you. But then they never tell you why it matters to you. They just state it. And colleges will often say, it's great that you told us about us. We already know about us. We want to know about you. So that's a little misconception out there is that the why essay is actually more about you than the school. So you got to tell people why what you told them was important matters to you and not just state it. So I know I kind of jumped all over there because I was going back and forth between your personal statement, which is more narrative reflection. With those, it's nice to have a story. Everybody likes stories. They're persuasive, interesting, and memorable. But all the power is in the reflection. It's what you learned from the story. It's how you grew. It's how you changed. It's how you see the world differently. That's what they're looking for on, on the personal statement. And the advice that you gave, I don't think you rambled at all because if I was a student or a parent listening, taking that in, digesting it, it's excellent information. And the reason why I say this, I can reiterate and confirm because there were days after Joshua met with you and I said, how did it go with Stucker? And he says, I have to do my research a little bit more. I have to look at the website. I have to talk about, you know, some of the prompt questions were the why, right? Sure. But then his essay, when we was proofreading it, was getting into more. He goes, I need to go deeper and communicate that part of it of myself being in that community, which at the end of the day, reading all his finals, it changed dramatically. They could have been like a seven or an eight when he started out. And I think they're high enough where if I was an admission director reading it first level or second level, do I see this student on my campus? And some of the admissions people that I know personally, that I've talked to at several schools that I'm affiliated with, talk about all right. So I'll ask them, like, if you're the admission director, I said, are you going to be reading Joshua's essay? They say, I will get, to, I will probably read it the second go around, right? Mm -hmm. There's going to be a couple eyes and then it's sure. going to get to individual, this individual. And, and I said, well, what do you look for? And they, they talk about being genuine. They talk about, yeah. are they sincere enough? He talks about, does he mention, for example, you know, parts of the campus and then how is he going to be, uh, does he, what you talked about, the interest and the understanding, just don't state it, but right. It's cold. Are you going to be wearing your Canada goose jacket, walking through wherever you're walking through the hall, through the lake, through the, uh, uh, and can you see yourself on that campus? So you're validating a lot of things that admission people are talking about. Let me ask you this, Mark, because I get this question a lot. Should I submit my SAT or ACT? And I tell them, 
well, first, maybe back in the day, yes, I said, I don't have any experience with that. Obviously, if you have a good score, I said, it doesn't hurt you. But I keep on leaning and I push them back towards it's going to be how your essay is, how you can separate yourself because a number is a number. And and I want to hear your take on that and what's your recommendation. If I'm a parent, let's say Joshua did take the SAT and he got like a 1150 or 1200, right? Or if he got like a 27, what would you tell me? Yeah, it's a really important question. I'm really glad you asked. Because what's happened in this test optional realm, and believe me, things have drastically changed. When we go back to 2020, pre-COVID, the test score was the third most important factor in admissions decisions. And we know this because the National National Association of College Admission Counseling does a survey every year where they ask admission offices to rate 16 things. They have to rate whether it's considerably important, moderately important, somewhat important, not important at all. And so consistently, grades, rigor, and testing had been one, two, three, one, two, three, like year after year after year. And the percentage of people that said test scores were considerably important over going back from 2012 to 2020, it ranged from a low of 46% to a high of 62% that said it was in the most important category. Well, the most recent uh, NACAC survey came out and it's down to 5%, 5% from 46 because schools went test optional, they had to, because you couldn't take the test. And then what they found out is, hey, we can read an applicant application without test scores. They also found out a lot of them, they got a lot more applications. They got a lot more applications from very difficult demographics, which is what they've always really wanted. So then even when the pandemic was over, they's like, why would we go back? We're going to, we don't know. Admission offices like getting applications. We don't want to go back on the applications. Plus, all our peers are are going test optional. We're going to be at a competitive disadvantage. So most of them have stuck with it. Having said that, test scores still are important for schools for a couple of reasons. One, for those that have them in the file, they will use them as a basic level of vetting to see, are you in the range of where people have been successful? Now, that's a pretty broad range. But if it's an extreme low, it can worry them. But the second reason they matter is the same reason that I was talking to you before about yield protection. One of the ways people judge schools is by test scores. Schools know that. The public tends to think higher test scores must be a better school. That may not be fair, but they you're naive to not know that people right. think that way. So as a result of that, what that means is that colleges do not like to see their average test scores go down. Plus, think about it this way. If you're a halfway selective school, you like you don't have to be extremely selective, but you're not a school in danger of closing. Well, all the people that you report to, all the stakeholders, nobody's really impressed the fact that you filled up or were full because you could be filled up by admitting anybody. So all the people that evaluate you, and I'm talking about everything from the provost to the board of trustees, to the president, to the faculty, to alumni, to parents and students. They're all looking at these metrics and they will infer that your standards are going down if your test scores go down. So test scores are also part of a school's marketing. So you don't want to pull down a school's averages because you're making it harder for me to please the people I answer to and you're making it harder for me to do my job. So so therefore, when you're looking at the decision to submit test scores, you need to do it on an individual school by school basis. And you need to know what are the scores that that school receives. 
And it's trickier now than ever because in the last three years, more people have not submitted than submitted. So you've seen you've seen 56, 54, and 52% of the population be non-submitters. So 44, 46, 48 be submitters. So more, when more people are not submitting than submitting, what it means is schools basically drop the whole bottom half of their lowest half of their testing profile out. Because people are smart. They're like, the people that don't submit are people that's, that know that their score's not that high. So what that's done is it's, got, it's caused the average scores to go through the absolute roof. I mean, it's insane. Uh, you know, many schools are up more than 100 points on the SAT on the average. Many, many. Some are up even double that. So it's a whole new bar now, whether to submit or not submit. So how do you do it? Well, here's where it gets tricky. Some schools will tell you, if your score is at the median score, meaning the middle middle score, then go ahead and submit. Other schools will say, if you get into our middle 50%, meaning you're between the 25th and the 75th percent, then submit. But you definitely want to submit if you're over the 50th percentile. You definitely don't want to submit if you're in the bottom quarter. Where it gets trickier is if you're in that 25th to 75th, but under the 50th percentile. Some schools are just coming right out flat out and telling people, if this, if you have this score, submit. And if you don't, don't. But not everybody does it. And there's so many different places where you can access uh, what their average scores are. You know, there's just millions and millions of places. You can go to Common Data Set. You can go to websites like College Navigator, collegedata.com, bigfuture.org. Schools produce their own school profiles most of the time that list their middle 50% or their median scores. So that's a tough, I mean, literally this morning before we got on, I was taking a student from Virginia through their schools on a school by school basis and telling them where to submit and where not to submit. But it's all done on an individual basis. I don't know. Did I answer that question for you, Michael? You you did 100% because I'll ask parents that I'm talking to, I said, what school are you talking about? Right. So for some of the higher tier, I said, absolutely. If you have a 29, 30, 31 submit those. If you're in the 22, 23, I'm like, for that, no, I would not. And I said, schools, and you kind of validated, admissions is looking at different things now. And I think they realize that the essay, and that's why I focus, I tell everybody, I believe it's about the essay and how you separate yourself and who you are. That's really going to determine, obviously, you have to have some stats out there and some grades, a rigor, right? But it's your essay. I want to ask you, now that essays are people that are doing the early deadline, November 1st, the next thing that are on some people's mind, is especially out here on the West Coast, and I know a lot of friends and peers in the local high schools here, they're migrating over to like University of Utah, right? Or Colorado State, these wooey schools where you sure. get, and there's wooeys out in the Midwest too, Minnesota. I was just out in Wisconsin this weekend. If you're a Minnesota student, right, you're paying in-state tuition for Wisconsin. So I know there's all types of programs out there that have the bordering states out here in the West Coast, the WUI. I want you to talk about that process next and then FAFSA, right? Financial aid, because I just spoke at Modern Day High School two weeks ago and I failed to mention talking about FAFSA. And I thought everybody in that room could probably benefited from talking about, all right, so what's WUI? What's FAFSA? Here's my chance to redeem myself. (laughs) <laughs> You're funny. So there are lots of different ways out there where you don't have to pay sticker price for tuition. 
One of them is tuition exchanges and reciprocity agreements. So when Michael referred to Wisconsin, Minnesota, that's a reciprocity agreement. So Wisconsin, in, well, Minnesota has agreement with Wisconsin. Each student can pay in-state for, for those schools because they're border states. They also have it with North and South Dakota and believe it or not, Manitoba, Canada. So they looked at their border states and they said, look, a lot of people want to go to school close to home. Why don't we do, an, why don't we do a deal? We'll let our students go to your state, in-state and vice versa. So there's a lot of those. Those are, res, those are reciprocity agreements. Louis is one of the big four tuition exchange agreements. There's one in, in New England. There's one in the Midwest. There's one, Louis, the 14 states in the West Coast that have uh, 160 colleges that participate in Louis. And basically, it's an opportunity to go out of state at a discounted price. Not every school participates in Louis, so you want to go to the Louis website and read which colleges are eligible. But it's an opportunity for you to go out of state at a reduced price. Here in the South, we have something called the Academic Common Market. That's our exchange. It goes from Texas all the way up to Delaware. It's pretty big, but you do need to read the fine print because some states don't participate for undergrad and some states don't participate for, for certain programs. But it's worth reading the fine print because it's a way to go to college at a reduced price. The other thing to keep in mind is a lot of schools give merit scholarships to every student that applies. And so one thing we always tell students, don't look at sticker price, look at net price. Net price or net cost is sticker price minus free money, which could be grants and scholarships directly from the institution, or it could be a tuition exchange like Louie, or it could be a reciprocity agreement. But only 11% of people pay full sticker for college. So, you know, while we look at the cost and it can look astronomical, that is not necessarily what you are going to pay. Now, the more you start looking at the bigger brand names, the more those schools don't do as much tuition discounting or scholarships because they have plenty of people that are willing to pay. And a lot of times their money is need-based, not merit-based. But we're really talking about less than 50 schools in the country, less than 40 really, that exclusively give money away on the basis of need and not merit. For the overwhelming majority of schools, they give merit scholarships, some to everybody who applies. It's just a, a marketing thing. So those schools, they work off of a model of high tuition, high tuition discount, meaning, snap, if our competitors are $75,000 full cost of attendance, and I always quote cost of attendance, by the way, cost of attendance refers to every single penny you pay. It, it consists of- Including trust. Yeah, yeah. So billable costs are four things, right? That's what you pay the bursar. That's tuition, meals and housing, and student fees. And then there's four non-billable costs, which are books and supplies, transportation, spending money, personal miscellaneous, everything from the concert to the movie to all of that. So I, that's what I call. That's what I always quote cost. A lot of schools will say, "Well, we don't want to list our price at fifty thousand if our competitors list at seventy-five because then people won't think we're as good a school." So they'll list at seventy-five and give everybody twenty-five. And they get two things out of that. They feel like they look like they're at their peer level. And some people think the higher the price, the better the school. Not everybody, but some do. And then little Johnny gets his $20,000, $25,000 scholarship. Everybody's happy. Parents are happy. They don't have to pay full. There's also win -win. Some, Yeah, yeah. You get to feel there's some pride there. He feels good about himself. So that's why you got to be very careful being turned off by sticker price. You want to look at net price to see what your actual cost is. And Willie is just one of the 
ways in which a, a school will take you down from its sticker price to a price oftentimes into your affordable price point. One of many ways. Well, that's that's interesting you said that because one of the schools that Joshua got admitted to, they're giving him $15,000 a year, right? Yeah. And he said, do they do that for everybody? And he said, like, who actually gets that and who accepts it? And I said, well, this school is actually trying to get some of the, should I say, academically kids that are probably most likely may not go to that school and trying to entice them and market them with a scholarship. I go think of you being like a student athlete, right? Here you have these 16 schools that you apply to, but some schools are giving you some tuition, partial financial aid, and some aren't. So that's how you have to do that. But I, I did tell them something students. else I want to share on that, Michael. So if you look at, I'll just, I'll just name three schools because these are three of the leaders out here. University of Alabama, University of Tennessee, Knoxville, University of South Carolina. These are public schools, public flagship schools that don't get a lot of money from their state because they tend to be more conservative states. When it comes to how you allocate money on the state budget, it's tough when there's a budget surplus. Usually they say, just give us a tax cut. So they're not getting a lot of revenue from their state. So what they've decided is, we're going to aggressively recruit out of state. We're going to set up regional admission officers all around the country. And I mentioned three of the states that have the most, three of the schools that have the most regionals. So they'll have the Alabama person who lives, you know, lives in L.A. and works the L.A. market, you know, Santa Barbara. Uh, they look at the big population centers, you mm -hmm. know, San Diego, San Francisco. They literally live there and they can meet you at Starbucks. They can meet your parents. And their job is just to drum up apps from that territory. Now, a lot of these states give tuition discounts or scholarships because their in-state tuition tends to be low. They're not getting a lot of state money from taxes, but they still need to run their institution. So they've figured out, well, if we charge 10 grand in-state, but 30 out of state, why don't we go recruit out of state and give people 15 grand and we still get 15,000 tuition instead of 10 in-state. So that's a very popular model of uh, out there of getting revenue to pay your bills is to aggressively recruit out of state, but give enough of a tuition discount or a scholarship. Now, it's usually not one size fits all. Usually the stronger the applicant is, the bigger it is. So some type of sliding scale, but that's a common uh, common option you'll find out there a lot. Well, and it absolutely works, especially here in Southern California, Orange County, because the major flagship universities, UCLA, Cal, USC, Stanford, Santa Barbara, UC San Diego, these students that are very qualified aren't getting in, so they are trying to go elsewhere. And now that, I mean, in four years, I, my daughter just said this, who's a senior at Wisconsin. She said, Daddy, I don't even think I'd be able to get into Wisconsin today. Well, you, you might not, but it's the harder it's getting for some of these schools, right? You look at, you mentioned some of them, Auburn, Alabama right? Tennessee. These are big schools that people in Orange County, Newport Beach are flocking to, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, right? Because they can't get into some of these schools out here in California that they would love to go to. So, Yeah. And Arizona and Arizona State are a couple examples of, of beneficiaries because they've both been very aggressive with their uh, tuition discounts for California res. A lot of times people can go to a, one of those schools for what they would even pay in state. Right um, at one of the, at one of the in-state schools. There's something you said though, Michael. I I wanna I wanna I don't want to miss before I forget. Remember when you're talking about essays and you and you talked about how important um, authenticity 
authenticity was. Yes. And so I have a quote and I love it. Our regular podcast listeners may be tired of me because I quote it a lot. It comes from Robin Mamlet, who's a former dean of admissions at a bunch of places, including Stanford and Sarah Lawrence and Swarthmore College and even boarding school, Lawrenceville Boarding School. But I love this quote. I want to read it to you. It says, even more than impressive test scores or great transcripts or fantastic essays, colleges are looking for authenticity, not the appearance of authenticity, not the packaging of authenticity, not the strategy of authenticity, just authenticity, plain and simple. So why is that? If they detect exaggeration or pretense or packaging, how do they know which parts of the application are real? So I just I just wanted to reinforce um, that point you made about importance of authenticity. And I just love that quote. So can you validate and confirm were Joshua's essays, were they genuine in authenticity? Absolutely. I, I'm, I, you know, I'm strict on that. Um, and I'm very strict on it's the student voice. You wrote it. Sometimes I'll say to somebody, your parent helped you with that, didn't they? It sounds like a 50 year old. You know, um, colleges want to hear the student and the student's voice. And I'll tell you, I never said this before, but these college-specific questions that you have to write, they are extremely important because if you think about every other aspect of the application, there's nothing that the colleges get to pick. They didn't get to pick where Josh went to high school. They didn't get to pick which courses he took, whether he took APs or AP tests or whether he's doing the SAT or the ACT, who he asked to do his teacher recs, what extracurriculars he did, what he did over his summers. They don't get to pick anything, but the one thing they get to pick are their college-specific questions, and they are very intentionally asked. They are either trying to identify somebody who is aligned with who they are or who they want to be. And so they're trying to suss out certain skills, experiences, personal qualities that they want more of in their student body. And they'll spend days in the summer, you know, debating within their office, like over a few words to how to tweak this question. And think about it. They're reading the same question over and over and over again. So it's easy to get bored. They're human. So you have to, you know, I'm a real stickler on that because I know how much they count. And I've had the privilege, Michael, of sitting in about seven or eight selective admission processes. I've sat in Harvard's, I've sat in Stanford's, I've sat in Emory's, Smith's, Haverford, UPenn, and others. And when I've sat in so often, the decision has come down to that college specific, especially like their questions, their why they'll say, man, I love this kid, but you can tell he put all the research in the personal statement and nothing into this why essay. Unfortunately, wait list. And it's interesting how you said that because you only have, I think some of the applications were like high points was 25 words or 50 words. Yes. Uh, some were be efficient words. Right. And somewhere 650 words. I know they're all over the place. Right. And you don't want to write your common essay. It needs to be completely different than this. Then. Yeah. Because then you're wasting their time. Every single part of the application, they want to learn something new. Same for schools that do have resumes. When I work with people on their resumes, I'm like, you've got to have a value add. They don't want a resume that looks like your activities list. So we have to. So, of course, there's going to be some overlap, but you got to provide some additional value to justify the use of their time. And the same, you're right. You don't want the, the common app to sound the same as the custom question because now you just wasted their time. They're always trying to learn who is this person and can I see them on my campus? What you just stated, can I see them on my campus, is, is 
really, really the big takeaway I want people to listen to because it is who you are, but can you visualize not only when they read it, but I tell students, I just told one of Joshua's friends, go to the campus, get away from your parents, walk around, walk around this student union, walk up and down, be by yourself. And you're going to know something's going to hit you in your gut. Like, why am I here? Or can I see myself on this campus? If you do enough of them. So I'm glad you brought that up. Let me ask you this question. For the seniors out there, obviously, we're going to hit the early deadline date. January 15th is probably like one of the next biggest deadline dates. Yes, you're right. There's the Cal State system, the UC system. But what if there's seniors out there that haven't even started the application process or they're still involved in it now? They're going to miss the November 1st deadline date. And they're still working on their essays. January's coming around. Yes, researching. You got the rolling emissions. And then you have some, even for those of you that are also, that have already hit submit for November 1st, you might want to find some extra add-ons. But what advice are you giving that senior student or parent that might be not so proactive on the November 1st deadline date? Well, first of all, I do tell people November 1st is not a deadline for really anybody. You know, it's an early application deadline sometimes, and sometimes it's a priority date when priority dates can impact your chance at admission or your chance at at a scholarship. So sometimes it's a priority date for both scholarship or admission, but it's not the final deadline. So I would say don't be discouraged because you still have time. Like I said, there's over 300 schools that are still open in May. I'm not encouraging you to wait until May, but you still have plenty, plenty of time. And the most important thing initially I want students to do is to get a good list. I want you to get a good list because if you, you know, I got a call four years ago, Michael, from someone who was second in their class out of 658 students. She was referred by this other student I'd worked with. She second in her class and she never got in anywhere. And that was just because of a bad list. Everybody was like, you're so smart. So you can imagine it was the Yales and the Stanfords and the Princetons and the Harvards. That was her whole list. So everybody's like, you're so smart. What a lot of people don't know is there's schools in this country that admit less than one in three valedictorians. And so you have to have a balanced list. Get get a really good list. It's really important. And I also want to speak a little bit to sophomores and juniors, because I'm sure your podcast is like ours, where you don't only have seniors listening. Correct. And one of the things that sophomores and juniors and even freshmen can do if your student's up for it, get on as many campuses as you can. And I'm not talking about hotel, airfare, rent-a-car meals. I'm talking about, you know, just what you can do within driving distance. Try to visit different types of schools. Visit a, visit a, you know, visit an urban school. Visit a school in a college town. Visit a school that's a little more remote. Visit a suburban school. Visit schools of different size, depending on your interests. Maybe a tech school, you know, maybe a women's college. Just depends. You know, get on different campuses. Maybe one's a big rah-rah school, like just different kinds of schools, because that will really help you to know, to build, to find when you see what you like and also trust your instincts when you're on those campuses, trust your instincts. So then you can look for other schools that are like it at different levels of selectivity. But the reason why I want people to get that list is because all of the strategy is going to flow out of the list. I can tell you schools for whom test scores are extremely important. And then I can tell you another school that test scores aren't even looked at. I can tell you a school that these college specific essays, custom questions are extremely important. I'll show you another school that doesn't even have any. 
I can show you a school where the interview is really important. I'll show you a school that doesn't even have any. I can show you one where extracurriculars are really important and then another school that doesn't have it. One where demonstrated interest is really important and then another school that doesn't look at that. And we could go on and on. So all of the strategy is going to flow out of the list. So I first want people to get a list. And even if you know certain schools that you like, then we can look for other schools that are similar to that, even if you don't get a chance to visit. And nothing's wrong. Not everybody has the luxury, either from a financial standpoint or they did enough planning in advance to get to every school before they apply. That's okay, especially if we're talking about out of state, long distance away, airfare and all that. But you do need to meet the deadline. As long as you meet the deadline, you've bought yourself until May 1st, which we call National Decision Day or National Candidate Reply Day. And you've bought yourself time to figure it out or to learn more. And I always tell people, you know, sometimes I, I'm recommending a school. Like, for example, right now there's a student and she's fantastic. I, I, I love working with her. She's in <laughs> Chicago. I happen to think Drexel is a really good match for her. She's like, I'm not sure. I'm just not sure. And then here's what I say to all my students. Applying is not committing to go. Applying is not committing to go. Get that application in. Let's get the acceptance. Now you've bought yourself until May 1st. You bought yourself six months. And that gives us a whole lot more time to figure it out. But put time into getting a really good list. And that's my advice for seniors, juniors, or sophomores. And you nailed it. I tell everybody this. I said, there's a reason why there's a May 1st deadline date. But you probably have students that go to maybe prestigious high schools out here in Southern California. Everyone's wearing that sweatshirt brand. There's that peer pressure from students and from parents. Where are you going? Where are you going? You want to know something, Mark? Yeah, that's real. I learned this. I learned this with Sophia and Julia going through the process. Now, I didn't have this podcast when they went through the mission process, but it got to the point where Julia was a senior. I recently had my first episode out, but I would ask all our friends, where are you going? Where are your top three? I would ask the common questions a parent would ask. Sure. And then when I started having guests on my podcast, Mm-hmm. They started, I said, what recommendation would you give? Or, you know, peer pressure, stress. They said they have enough pressure from their friends and their parents. Yep. And I took something away that now I do with Joshua's friends. I don't even ask them where they're yeah, going, smart. where their top peer schools are. I asked them this, or actually I just, I text one of his friends. I said, if you need any help, if you need any advice, you want to talk to someone, you let me know. I'm here. And, but if you don't want my advice, if you don't want my opinion, don't ask me. But I'm not here to just hound you. Where are you going? So what are your top three? Who did you apply to? You know. So I wanted to clear. You answered and you answered that question perfectly about the May 1st deadline date. And as we wrap up, because I know your time is very valuable, I didn't get to touch on this. But when we started go to visit our other campuses for the second time, third time, HPU is one of them. That was when we really started asking more deeper questions. Joshua sat down with the dean of the missions. He sat down with the uh, business school dean and the communications dean, and he had a list of questions. And it came to my mind. I said, he should be doing this at every school if you get on campus. He was asking questions like, he said, so what classes would I be taking my freshman year as compared to my senior year? And obviously, you know, he's filmed. So he was comparing it to like, USC, you're not even going to be able to touch this class, not touch the equipment. And it was interesting to see some of the feedback the teachers gave, right? The professors like High Point, and you know this very well. The professor said, here's why you should come here. We are on campus 
we are required to be on campus and teach five days a week. We need to be in our office. We're just not teaching class and then having our TAs, right? And she said, yeah, we fluff it up a lot. She says High Point does that a lot. And here's what stands out. And Joshua brought this up to me the other day. He said, you know what I took away from her? She said, we are going to take care of you. We are going to care for our students. There are certain things that as a student and parent, we're interviewing them, we're going to walk away with. Because a question I've, I told Joshua to ask, or they asked me to, and a parent would ask, like, what do you ask? I always just say, what do you not like about this campus? Why should I not even consider this campus? I want to hear their negatives. Don't sell me on it, but like, tell me the worst thing about this campus, right? Even when you're on that campus asking a student, like you find a group of people, guys, girls, if they're in the Greek system or not, we would just walk up to them. You know what? We're from California. What do you not like about this school? So I kind of got off on a tangent there, but sure. meeting with our professors, asking specific questions like mm -hmm. that, what classes you're going to take, how often am I going to see you, is your door open? Those are good tips, correct? Yeah, yeah. I'm big on actually casually having conversations with people that the admission office doesn't give you. I like to talk to at least 10 before I leave a campus. And it's some oftentimes the most valuable part of my whole, my whole experience, better even than the tour or my casual conversations. And there's a lot of good questions to ask. Three of my favorites, I like to start positive and say, what are the best things about coming here? It kind of opens them up. And then I like to say, if you could change anything, what would you change? And that gets them talking. And then I, you know, I like to ask them, what did you not know until you got here? So I have others I like, but those are three of my faves. And Great I've had question. students do this all the time. And a lot of times they're shy, but you know what? If you step outside your comfort zone, you'll find it's not as hard to do as you think. Like they were in your seat a year or two ago before. You just say, you know, I'm seriously considering coming here. Would it be okay if I just ask you two or three quick questions? Most of the time you're polite to people, they're polite back. And normally the only time they say no is if they're like, hey, sorry, I'm running late for class. Um, that's very valuable. And I'm big on customizing the visit. I think it's very important, you know, sitting back and brainstorming and asking yourself, what is important to me? And then whatever's important to you, you can set up, meetings with people in advance. I might have a kid that's got a peanut allergy. They might want to meet with somebody in food services to see how they're going to accommodate that. You know, I might have another person that's totally into robotics and they want to, you know, or I have someone that wants to sit in a class or I have somebody else that's really concerned about jobs and internships and career placement. And they want to talk to someone in career center, got someone else with learning differences and they want to know how, how the school is going to accommodate the students learning differences or someone that's really concerned about academic supports or residential life, or they're an athlete and they want to meet with a coach. Like you first start with what do I need to know about this school to figure out one, do I even want to apply? Or two, if I do want to apply, where is it on my list? And then uh, reach out and try to set up times to talk to the people who are important to you. That's what I recommend people do to customize visit. And also on your college kid to come, we have a blog. And I have a blog on the blog. I've got like great questions to ask in an interview, great questions to ask on a college visit, what to do to maximize a college visit. People might might like that blog as well. You can get a hold of Mark Stucker reaching out 404-664-4340. A friend, a second time guest, Joshua's college counselor. Mark Stucker, it's been a pleasure having you. You are just a wealth of information on college search admission process. I know my audience and I know my guests are going to be excited to listen to this one and keep up doing an amazing job. We appreciate you very much. 
Well, thank you for having me on. And I'm loving California. It's actually, I have more students I work with in California than any state. So, and it's our number one state for listeners. So um, I'm loving California these days. Thanks for having me on, Michael. That's why we're going to get you more. For Fonger News and the Student Manager, I am out.